Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ plus support. For the month of February, St. Evans is supporting Canal Cafeteria, a nonprofit that provides sliding scale fresh produce bags to the Lower East Side neighborhood of New York City. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women of color run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop vintage. 
do good and wear St. Evans. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is pretty worried about Brenda's public image after she bit me on Instagram Live this weekend. (laughs) Do we need to get her like a good PR fixer or is she just going to be that cat? She really brought some like real housewives energy to Instagram on Friday night. I'm your host, Amanda. And yes, if you missed our inaugural Instagram live Q&A session, you can check it out on the Close Horse Instagram feed at Close Horse Podcast. And I think we're going to do this every week on Friday nights. So save up your questions from this episode for our chat on Friday night. It was so awesome to hang out with you, even though it's a little weird. It's sort of like talking to myself, but I get to see messages from you. It's better than talking to myself for sure. which is what I'm essentially doing right now when you really think about it. This is episode 54, and today we're going to hear from two members of our incredible Close Horse community, Alex of St. Evans and Daisy May of Rebloomed Design. Both of these guests fit so nicely into Secondhand Month, and you'll find out why. Alex is going to teach us how to determine the age and, well, vintageness of the clothes we encounter at the thrift store. I learned so much from her, so I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. And Daisy May is going to tell us about her experience as a one-person brand that she has been running since she was in college. I'm so excited for you to meet her because she is so talented and she makes me so excited for the future of upcycled and sustainable clothing. I'm going to skip thanking our newest Patreon supporters for this episode, mostly because there's just so much to talk about today. And to be honest, I'm still waiting for some confirmation on some last name pronunciations, which you know how important that is to me. But I will say thank you so much to everyone who signed up for Patreon this week. You know, your support allows me to hopefully someday make Clothes Horse my real, actual paying job. So every time you sign up for Patreon, you make my dream feel closer. Thank you so much. If you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions, which Annie Beam did this week. Thank you so much, Annie. It was such a pleasant surprise. Do you hear that sound? Yeah, it's a real sound because many of you have reached out to say that you wish I had a phone sound. It makes me laugh to hear it. I don't know if it will ever not make me laugh, so it's worth including it. And I'll probably be trying a few different ring sounds over the next few weeks, so let me know what you think of this one. Do you have a better suggestion? Send it my way. This particular sound effect was recommended by Aaron, who called in on the last episode to talk to us about personal style. Anyway, the phone was ringing, but we missed the call because I was talking about ringtones, and now we have a voicemail from Sammy of Dylan Page. 
Hey, Amanda. This is Sammy from Dylan Page. I am calling in because this weekend I was standing in my closet looking at my clothes, trying to formulate new outfits. And at the very back of my closet, I noticed I had old bridesmaid dresses. And in the past, I've gotten really lucky because I've been able to sell some of my bridesmaid dresses to friends who were in weddings that um, the colors were really similar. But I still have a few that are just, like, hanging around. And I just want to know, like, what are we doing with all of our old bridesmaid dresses? I know we've talked about, like, T-shirts that have been made, those, like, one-and-done kind of T-shirts for, like, bachelorette parties. But what do we do with all of our bridesmaid items? I would love to hear different ways that other people have upcycled theirs or done new fun things with them. If anybody on here is taking old bridesmaid dresses, I would love to send my dresses to you um, because I would just love to see something happen to them. I mean, one of them I'm looking at in my closet, and this bridesmaid dress was $286. And when I got the dress in, I asked the people at the bridal shop, I was like, are you sure the company ordered me the right size dress because or that's something that happened in manufacturing? Because the top of the dress was literally – three sizes too big and the bottom of it was perfect. It looked like they like actually put two different types of the dress together. So with alterations and everything, this ended up being a $500 dress. And I would just love for this dress to go somewhere other than a landfill. So if you guys have any ideas of what to do with these, I would love to hear them. And I know we've all heard, like, oh, you can shorten the dress and wear it again. But none of these dresses are dresses that I feel like I could ever shorten. So if you have any ideas, I cannot wait to hear. Um, So I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you. You know, I'm so glad that Sammy called about this because I know a lot of you have some bridesmaid dresses just sort of lurking at the back of your closet. And it's weird. I was thinking about this after I listened to Sammy's message. I don't see a lot of those dresses at the thrift store, which, I mean, I have so many questions, right? Are we just holding on to them in the hopes that maybe someday we will really wear them again? Because, you know, there's this long-held idea. I've been told this. You've heard this for sure, that you can just hem them up you know, cut off a couple feet of length and just wear them to another event. In most cases, that's definitely some wishful thinking because, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but bridesmaids' dresses just look like bridesmaids' dresses and that is just that, no matter what you do. I was obsessed with trying to find out how many bridesmaid dresses are sold every year, pre-pandemic, of course, because all bets are off right now. But I couldn't find anything. Like I really had – I was so excited about that thought of shocking you with this crazy number of dresses being sold every year. But I'm sorry to say, despite asking the internet in every possible way, I could not find that fact. But here's what I did learn, and it was pretty interesting to me actually – Business at bridal stores has, quote, slightly declined over the last five years as the falling marriage rate has clashed with a strong macroeconomic climate. That's according to IBIS World, which 
does a lot of analysis into the retail industry. Despite that decrease in sales, bridal stores still do about $2.4 billion in sales each year in a non-pandemic world, right? So let's talk about 2019. And yes, some of those sales are bride dresses, but it would seem, this is just some speculation here, that the majority of that number would be bridesmaids dresses because they outnumber brides in most weddings, even if the bride dress is more expensive than the bridesmaid dress. So it would seem that we're looking at at least a billion dollars worth of bridesmaids dresses being bought every year. In the United States, by the way, all these numbers are the United States. Even in 2019, you know, the old world, the bridal industry was struggling because, you know, a lot less of us get married or we wait a lot longer. Others, you know, we opt to spend our savings on houses and travel rather than a big old wedding. And, you know, this has hit the industry pretty hard. The largest mass market player in the space is David's Bridal. It's almost kind of like the McDonald's of weddings. <laughs> they were downgraded in May 2019, which means that they have not good credit and their stock price isn't very good. And that was just four months after emerging from bankruptcy. I've heard rumors that they're probably heading back towards that. In 2018, Gap abandoned the bridal startup it had acquired two years before, which was called Weddington Way. I totally bought a bride's dress from Weddington Way a few years ago. It was fine. <laughs> that would be my review. It was fine. J. Crew had a pretty beloved bridesmaid dress assortment. I, it was a go-to for a lot of weddings for a long time. Well, it shut down its own bridal store in 2016 after almost a decade of really being, like I said, the go-to because it was just, it felt a lot more contemporary and the colors were a lot more interesting and modern. In 2017, bridal retailer Alfred Angelo, which ran 61 stores in the United States plus others abroad, just abruptly shuttered and brides all over the world were devastated because their dresses were just sort of gone. After all of this bridal carnage, the biggest players remain David's Bridal and Beholden, which is owned by Urban Outfitters. And I, I can't underscore this enough, but the bridesmaid industry, the bridesmaid dress industry for the past 10 years has fallen into the same trap of every other clothing retailer, and that is the trap of fast fashion. And in fact, I would go as far as saying that a lot of these major retailer bridesmaid dresses are fast fashion. You know, lots of synthetic fabrics, cheap trims, all sold when they're at full price at an incredibly high markup because like we talk about a lot around here, the expectation is that most of them will sell at a discount. Especially with the field being so crowded for a while there, you know, we had so many different retailers trying their hand at sort of like an alternative or less expensive bridal and bridesmaid dress option, right? At Mod Cloth and Nasty Gal, both, we got into bridal too. And it was definitely much more successful at Mod Cloth. But I think that shows the scope of brands that were around, I don't know. 
15 deciding that they were going to get into this lucrative, at that point, bridal market. Even H&M has tried it. I remember those dresses and they were like definitely under $100, I want to say. But you think about all the brands I've listed here who tried their hand at bridal. So we've got Gap, J. Crew, H&M, Mod Cloth, Nasty Gal. They're all fast fashion retailers in the first place. So why would their bridal collection be any different? And of course, the assortment at David's Bridal is, of all of these, probably the most appallingly low quality and ill-fitting of all of them. Like, I don't know if you've ever had to go in there and try on a dress, but as a person who's worked in the industry, I was like irate the entire time. Furthermore, no one really cares that the quality of these dresses isn't that great, that they are made of synthetic fabrics and have crappy trims, all the things I've talked about, even that the fit isn't that great. I mean, just thinking about the dress that Sammy described that was huge in the top and like just fit her in the bottom, like they were two halves of two different dresses. I think that's par for the course because I don't think a lot of time is being spent on really nailing the fit. And I'll tell you, I've worked with some people at past jobs who came from David's Bridal, and they were very clear with me that the strategy is to make the dresses not fit very well because David's Bridal makes a ton of money off of their in-store alteration services. And I'm pretty sure there's a weird thing like if you get it altered in the store, you could still return it if you have a problem. But if you buy it and get it altered somewhere else, they won't take it back. So it definitely, I don't know, kind of manipulates the customer into using David's Bridal to alter their dress. So all in all, these dresses are terrible, but these companies are able to kind of coast by on that because unfortunately, like I was saying when we started this conversation – None of us expect to wear that dress again. I mean, yes, we put it in the closet with the hopes that somehow, someday, that purple bridesmaid dress will be useful in our day-to-day lives, but it just doesn't happen. So what do we do with all of these dresses? I don't know the answer, so I want to hear what all of you think. Any suggestions you have? How do we make weddings more sustainable? Please drop me an email at amanda at clotheshorse.world or call the hotline like Sammy did. That number is 717-925-7417. You can also record a voice memo with your phone and email it to me. And that might be a better option for you if you have a lot to say. I can't wait to hear from all of you. Let's solve the mystery of what to do with these bridesmaids dresses. And thank you for calling, Sammy. As you know, I believe that the future of our planet depends on small business. Last year, Amazon did $386 billion in sales. I mean, wow, right? That's so many zeros that I couldn't use the calculator on my iPhone. Let's say we replaced Amazon with 100,000 medium-sized businesses. Each of them would do about $3.9 million per year, close to $4 million in sales each year. Not too shabby, right? I mean, that's a pretty big business, right? Definitely decent size, and each company could create good-paying jobs while not totally being so big 
that they kind of lost their perception of right and wrong, which is where we are right now. Well, okay, so that was 100,000 medium-sized businesses. What if we replaced Amazon with 1 million small businesses? Each one of those businesses would do close to $400,000 in sales each year, which would allow them to, you know, have a couple of employees, pay living wages, and the owners themselves could live a pretty decent life, right? And they would maintain control of the sort of like values of their company. But Amazon isn't the only massive company out there. The fashion industry as a whole, and so I'm talking about like clothing, shoes, accessories, is projected to reach $2.25 trillion in sales by 2025. And that number, that $2.25 trillion, that's just brand new clothing. So imagine if a substantial portion of that shifted into secondhand clothing. And when I say secondhand clothing, I'm also including clothing and accessories made out of upcycled materials, right? Because we're really talking about like reducing the impact of creating new materials here. That would change everything. I mean, we would save so much water. There'd be so much less weird chemicals from dyeing and washing down clothing being out, like used and then therefore finding their way into our water supplies. Uh, it would definitely reduce the carbon footprint of the industry just like astronomically. Be pretty magical, right? But we also know that currently, this is a fact I'm always citing on here, 97% of the total fashion industry profits each year are made by just 20 companies. That $2.25 trillion, uh, almost all of it, is going to 20 companies. Imagine if we redistributed that and we split that more than $2 trillion across 1 million smaller companies. These would be more like a medium-sized company And each company would be then doing more than $2 million in sales every year. Like, not too shabby, right? Divide that same $2.25 trillion number across 10 million small businesses. Each of those are doing about $225,000 in sales each year. And that's a pretty decent living. Once again, we're shifting the wealth that currently is shared by about 20 companies across 10 million small businesses. That's a massive redistribution of wealth and it could change the world in so many ways. I I don't even know where to begin, but one major change is that it would allow businesses to serve a more regional local customer base, which would cut down on transcontinental and intercontinental shipping, and that would reduce the overall carbon footprint of the industry so much than if you think if we were using majority like secondhand or recycled materials. I mean, we're talking a major shift right here. We don't need multinational mega companies. And that might sound unlikely to you because we've all grown up in the era of enormous, enormous business, right? Even as recently as the 1970s, there weren't that many national chains. 
People bought the bulk of just about everything from local shops and regional department and grocery chains that might just be three, four, five stores, maybe 10. These chains were significantly smaller than Walmart or Target. What happened is over time, larger corporations acquired tons of these regional chains and absorbed them into mega chains, right? So one of the things I want to do here at Close Horse, because I believe so much in the power of small business to really change our world, to improve the lives of workers and just humans in general all over our planet, and to really change the impact of what we wear on the environment. One of my missions for both the podcast and the blog is to highlight small businesses. I know it's hard to find all the makers, vintage and secondhand sellers, boutiques, artists, and small brands out there, right? It's like they can't afford to do a ton of advertising and you only have so much time in your day to track them down. That makes it harder for you to spend your money with them, which the way we allow these businesses to flourish and create even more businesses and reach more people is by giving them our money, by buying from them rather than huge chains, rather than those 20 corporations that are making most of the money. So I want to do everything I can to connect you with all of these talented individuals. So like I said, I'm going to highlight them here on the podcast in different conversations. We'll be interviewing them for the blog. We're creating a brand directory. And I have so many more ideas that, you know, we'll see how it goes, right? I'm super excited for you to meet Daisy May of Rebloomed Design. I stumbled across her line on Instagram and I was just immediately obsessed. I had to meet her ASAP. So let's listen to our conversation. Hello, I'm Daisy <laughs> May and I am the founder of Rebloomed Design. Um, I guess to introduce myself a little bit, I was born and raised in Indiana and I'm still here, but I have plans of moving within the next year or two, definitely. And um, I started Rebloomed in 2017 when I was 18 years old, a senior in high school, and what kind of like catapulted me into becoming a fashion designer is um, like me and all my peers, we were wearing whatever like college we were planning on going to in the fall and mm-hmm. I personally like I can't I I don't like wearing t-shirts even though I'm wearing just like a plain t-shirt right now I don't I don't think that they're cute they make me feel unoriginal just like mm-hmm. everybody has that t-shirt so I started upcycling my college t-shirts and slowly I had people coming like from my school bringing me their t-shirts saying like hey can you upcycle this for me so and then I had people from surrounding schools starting to send me stuff. And then all of a sudden it's like I had hundreds of emails or not emails of messages on Instagram being like, can you upcycle this for me? So I just, (laughs) I kind of went with it. It was very unintentional, kind of chaotic at the beginning. I mean, everything in life is chaos, but um, (laughs) it was, yeah, it started very quickly and like, was a great jump start, and so in the fall of 2017, I decided to go off to college, and I just graduated in December of 2020 with my fashion design major, and then I did a focus in sustainability and textiles 
And, like, during that three and a half years of me being in college, I was simultaneously still operating and running Rebloomed out of a, a tiny dorm, like a 10 by 10 dorm space with my roommate. <laughs> and then after that, I think I was located in um, a one-bedroom apartment with my partner sharing art spaces because he's a photographer. And then now, finally, after almost four and a half, five years, I'm in a cozy little house with my own studio space. I can just, like, walk in my room and not have any distractions, just, like, straight creativity. So it's been really nice to be able to work full-time on Rebloomed in my own space now, finally. (laughs) I mean, what a crazy time to graduate from college. (laughs) Oh, I know. It it was so anticlimactic. It's like all of this hard work, and then it's like, oh, let's have a Zoom grad party. Yeah. Wah, wah. But it's okay. It's fine. So are you, are, are you doing Rebloomed full-time now? Yeah, so I decided to just focus all of my energy on Rebloomed, and then I actually have two other jobs. I'm a workaholic, but it's okay <laughs> because I like working, so mm-hmm, <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. it's not bad for me. But I work at a boutique as well, and then um, I work as a fill-in professor at Indiana University as a fashion design, like, fill-in professor because my professor has a sick baby, and I needed to help her. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm still teaching, but... I think it's good for now because it's all remote and it's still a pandemic. So, yeah, I'm lucky, honestly. So what's it like to run a business during a pandemic, a clothing business? Well, I mean, it's it hasn't been easy by any means. I feel like I had an easier transition than most businesses because I had already been running online through Instagram. So the transition should have been pretty smooth, but unfortunately, like, my mental health kind of went out the door in 2020 as the pandemic hit because I had been spending countless hours on a clothing collection and a fashion show that got canceled the week before it was supposed to happen. And I was just, like, so depressed. But after... After, like, kind of getting through that, I started making masks because I realized that was the thing that was giving me hope. Like, oh, this this can get better if we just wear masks. And so I spent all summer of 2020 making over 12,000 masks in, like, a five-month span. And that kind of restarted my creativity, and I decided to finish that abandoned collection that I named Splice and just released last week. (laughs) And... (laughs) started planning more for my future and yeah it was nice getting just getting to stay home and work 24 7 basically during the pandemic that's what made it easy but other than that it was hard yeah but it's kind of like if you're an artist if you're a creative person there is like a certain level of like joy and contentment of, of being at home and just being able to work on stuff I totally get that I mean that's my life right now too and you know, other than like all the other anxiety about what's going on in the world, it's, I'm pretty happy. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I, I'm in a very comfortable position. I, I feel really good right now. But, you know, mental health is always something that's on my mind. And 
got to take care of ourselves. So if you have to take a break from a project that's causing you a lot of turmoil, do it, you know, take a month away or two months away if you can afford to, because that's what I had to do. And Splice turned out better than ever. So Yeah, Splice is amazing. So why don't you tell us the story behind Splice? So Splice was supposed to be my senior thesis collection, and that ended up getting canceled, so I was kind of, like, left in the dust for a little bit, but I finally picked it back up, and what it is, it's um, a collection of couture pieces, so it's all Italian couture techniques that I use while constructing these. It took me over a year to make and is made 100% out of vintage scarves and thrifted fabrics, so... Like, in terms of my creative process, I am inspired most by the textiles I have at hand. And for me, like, that limitation is my fuel for creativity and helps me create even better products. So that's kind of, like, how I made the collection. But a little bit more details about it is it's size inclusive. I made custom pieces for models that were size double zero up to size 22. And I really just, like, wanted to make a collection that was bold, inclusive, and was also inspiring, like, people to spark conversations about textile waste in the fashion industry, you know? Is your long-term plan to always reuse, like, upcycle um, existing materials or just, like, a one-off? Like, what are your feelings about using those kinds of materials? Yeah, so I... I think in order to stay happy and content with, like, what I'm doing in life, I'll probably only use secondhand materials. And, like, I mean, we've all heard the stats saying every year the U.S. produces, like, what, 15 million tons of textile waste. And and I feel like as a society we've kind of, like, normalized saying, like, oh, I make garments out of dead stock materials and it's sustainable – well, I used to upcycle dead stock material for this company, but then I realized like dead stock isn't sustainable. It's just overproduction mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we shouldn't be like putting it on the consumer to have to deal with this textile waste when it shouldn't have even like been a thing to begin with if they did the design process right. No, I totally agree. I mean, often it's because a brand, a retailer wants an exclusive print, but you can't just say like, okay, we're going to make, you know, 500 units of this, make 500 units worth of fabric. That's just not how it works. You have to make an entire roll or you have right. to round up to the next entire roll. So you're going to print at least one full roll. Maybe you only needed one and a half rolls, but you're going to exactly. print, two, you know, that kind of thing. And these are not just like the size of the bolts of fabric that you see at Joanne. These are like, you have to deliver them in a truck, you know? Yeah. Like, it's massive. so much waste. And I'll, I'll, like, be honest, you know, I've worked for companies that wanted their own prints, could only afford to buy 300 units, printed a whole bolt that was, like, you know, well more than a 1,000 units worth of fabric, and they just ate the cost. And it just is theoretically chilling somewhere right now. But you know that's not true. Yeah. It, it probably yeah. got thrown out or burned. Exactly. That's like the harsh reality of things is most of the time the consumer doesn't even get a chance to upcycle these dead stock things because they just get destroyed, which is so sad. Now I'm currently working on uh, not using like so much dead stock material and extra like textile waste as I was with Splice, but now 
I've kind of changed my scope to working more with discarded quilts and like more of like linen textiles, uh, more of like the home textiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually in the promotion phase of my second collection that I'm releasing called Metamorphosis, where I've taken these vintage and discarded quilts and I've turned them into unique pieces of clothing. They're like clothing sets. And what actually inspired me to make this collection was one of my closest friends, she gave me this butterfly printed heirloom quilt that her grandma had given her for me to like make into something for her. So I actually made like a cropped jacket short set for her and I loved the process. I kind of fell down the rabbit hole of quilt history and like linen textile history and all that weird stuff. And I made a collection. So it's, it's exciting. I'm actually launching it next week on February 19th. That's amazing. I have seen some of the preview photos on Instagram and it is so cute. Everybody has to check it out. I I love it. The pink, the pink quilt jacket and like dying over Oh, yeah. uh, I made I made that out of a quilt top, so it's like lightweight and really comfortable. I love so it. Cute. Well, I love that you're like leaning into like home textiles because I think that you know it, they're sort of like the forgotten part of te- of textile waste for a lot of people. You know, like so many sheets and blankets and towels and you name it get thrown out yeah. every year, and it's a substantial portion of our personal textile waste, but I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. Um, And I always, something that I always get stressed out about is like what I call like the home goods industrial complex, which is like all of these stores selling so much home stuff all the time. And people are just buying throw pillows constantly and redecorating their houses over and over again. 60% off too. (laughs) I know. I know. And it's all super weird. I was telling one of my friends a while back that the craziest thing I've ever seen out of home goods was this like seriously full size like like a Cinderella sort of pumpkin carriage made out of like wrought iron oh. and it was like bedazzled and I was like yeah. why would someone buy that? <laughs> like what it's the heck? Terrible. I can't I even go I can't even go into big stores like that because I'm just like the waste. The oh my god, waste. I know, I like, know. I get I get way too upset. I I had to make an emergency trip to Joanne this week, and I was just, like, so upset about everything they were selling. Uh, so what do you think you want to do next? So um, I'm currently in the ideation phase of my, like, what I want to be my spring collection, and I actually just went to an antique mall last week here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I'm living currently, and I bought a bunch of vintage um, tablecloths, and so I'm planning, like I said, I'm still in the ideation phase, but I'm hoping that I can make some, uh, it's it's hard to put to words right now, because I just have all of the designs in my head, but I want to make garments that can fit multiple sizes and and are kind of transformable, like linen pants that can fit size. 10 to 16 while also like making a pair of pants that can fit size zero to eight or something like that. Like making the waistband more modern and, mm-hmm. you know, cause people are always changing sizes. Like I can go from a size eight 
to 14 in just a year from like the winter weight that I put on. So I think it's important to have clothes that change with you. And Mm -hmm. it's just an idea right now, but I hope to execute it. I mean, that's so smart. And, you know, I was about to say like, why don't more designers and brands do that? But then I was like, oh, right. Because then we would buy less clothes. (laughs) I mean, I think that is the future, like really being like, I don't know. It's not even like the word honest. But it's just like, I don't know, straightforward and realistic about how our bodies exist. You know what I mean? And kind of architecturing clothes around that rather than this like really dated idea of like, this is how your body should be all the time. And if it isn't, then it's like a personal failure on your part or just something, something that makes you feel bad for sure and makes you buy more stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, from the beginning, I've always made clothing that I felt were lacking in the industry. And Mm -hmm. I think that having clothes that are transformable with your forever transforming body is really important. And I just kind of had that idea. So I still need to like fine tune the design and stuff. But like I said, I hope to execute it. And I like seriously can't thank you enough, Amanda, for like having me on here so I can reach more people. And I'm just so excited that I could talk to you today about this stuff. It's like you said earlier, you're really coming into 2021 with an advantage and that, yes, you just finished school, but, like, you have been running your own business for, like, four years now. And I, I'm interested to hear, like, what do you, what do you want to do next? Because, you know, a lot of people go to school for fashion and then, like, you know, the best that they can hope for is that they're going to go get some sort of, like, you know, design assistant job somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Corporate. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a big portion of my career has been in the corporate area too, but like you, I don't know how you would go do that now because you're already like doing this cool thing, you know? Trust me. I know my, I mean, I have parents that are kind of like pushing me to find a corporate job, something that's stable, you know, healthcare, that's important. Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) for me, I'm just like, I don't, think that I can find my happiness there. I don't think that I could find satisfaction going into a company where I have to order 5 million units of something. Like that just wouldn't bring me happiness. So I actually, I've been trying to kind of like refocus my scope of Rebloomed and really kind of make it a more efficient, simplified and like just a really well-rounded business. And I actually just started reading this book that has inspired me a lot called um, A Company of One by, I think it's Paul Jarvis. It basically lies out exactly my dreams for my business. And I think that's to create a business that's driven by sustainability and is autonomous. It's like I can operate it on my own time. It's owned by me. I don't have any investors that kind of are directing my my flow of work and I just want it to be efficient and resilient you know Uh and I think I think I've done that especially like being able to escape the forefront of the pandemic and now kind of being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel um it's kind of shown me that I do have the resiliency to keep this going to keep not necessarily keep it growing that's not my intention is to grow my business it's more just to keep it small, keep it efficient, and it's easier said than done. <laughs> and, but yes, yes. I'm, I'm 
confident that if I just keep working hard and doing things like this and putting myself out there that I can really form a solid base of customers who are as equally passionate about what I'm making as what they're buying. So what is your dream for your business? Like, what could you do that would make you feel like, wow, I'm really, I'm really killing it right now? Wow. I feel like I'm doing it right now. I, That's I've awesome. Felt, <laughs> I feel like I've never felt more confident in what I'm doing than what I'm doing at this very moment. And that's just kind of like following my gut with things. And it's hard for me to kind of look into the future because every time I've made plans or had expectations for something, they've never worked out. So I'm more of like a day-by-day kind of person. Um, And so like having dreams is hard, but I guess my, my dream would just to be to keep this happiness flowing and keep this like creativity coming and I know that it won't forever but I I hope that it stays on like an easy cycle you know because my cycle is I'm super creative for like a whole month and I get so much work done and then I have to take a week off to kind of let my body and brain rest and rejuvenate I know I didn't answer that last question very good. But, you know. <laughs> I think you did. I think I think it's exciting to feel like you are already in this amazing place and you're so happy because I think especially when you are in like a business of one, sometimes you don't get the the moment to stop and and realize like, oh wow, I'm like living my dream right now. You know, because and this is just a reminder for anyone who's listening who is like running their own business right now. Everyone who works in the corporate side is like dreaming of your life right now. So <laughs> being able to like be creative and put yourself out there and I, I just succeed at it is like every corporate worker's dream. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part is the reality that sometimes things just like don't work out and that's whether it's like a cleaning error or a sewing error and you have these like one-of-one pieces that you're working with that you'll never find again like sometimes Mm. you fail really badly and it hurts and but like I said like I just dream of being truly resilient and being able to conquer all of those failures and like I'm I'm still living month to month I'm going to be completely honest with you this isn't like oh totally I'm not I'm not financially secure at all I'm just doing what I can but I think that it's good to focus on not necessarily like the monetary success or like the things that you have making that be your success but just feeling the success of being content with what you're doing with every minute of your day yeah Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I'm in the same boat. You know, I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic, and I worry constantly about, like, our financial situation, but I also am working on so much cool stuff right now and meeting so many amazing people and just, yeah, I don't know, just, like, I'm so driven because I'm doing what I want to do and not what someone else wants me to do. I don't know. It's a good feeling. Yeah, (laughs) it's so nice. I I mean, I have the juxtaposition of having two bosses while also, like, having myself be (laughs) my third boss. So 
I can tell you for sure I love myself as my boss way more than any of my other No doubt. I, I, I feel like that is very true. <laughs> um, do you have anything else you'd like to tell everyone while you're here? I feel like I've let people in and let them know who I am, but I would love to get to know everybody who's listening and also just get to know a potential customer, you know, <laughs> like, and meet new people that are like-minded and have the same values and, and drive as me. So I, I've also, I've already connected with a lot of the artists you've kind of shouted out on this podcast and I'm even trying to become like Instagram friends with some of them. <laughs> so I just, I hope that I can have more interactions like that. And this podcast has truly like brought me to a community that does have the same values as me. And I, I really love seeing that because it's easy to feel like you're the lone fish in the sea when everybody around you is doing things that aren't necessarily driven with your same values, basically. Oh, no, totally. I agree with that. You know, it's, I mean, I, I talk to so many people now every day and people say things to me that I have been thinking about for a long time, but I've never actually said out loud. And it's like, whoa, wait, other people are getting upset when they go to home goods or like, you know, yeah. other <laughs> people cry when they leave Macy's. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like it is, it is very, I don't know. It's like, it's simultaneously like comforting and empowering to see that we're not just these like lone outliers out there just having crazy thoughts or something, but it's like real. And there's so many other people who are kind of isolated, but very passionate. And I, in this really weird way, I think the pandemic has kind of brought us all together as, as like a community. And if we were still out there, like having to live our normal lives, we probably wouldn't have met one another. So right, that's like my... That's- a hundred percent true. Nothing would be the same if the pandemic had worked. Right. Totally. If the <laughs> pandemic had not worked, basically, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I had, I, my original dream was to move to New York City. I had um, two internships lined up and one of them was paid and very well paid. And I was like, okay, this is my, this is my shot to kind of make it into the corporate world and kind of change it from within. But then I realized that's not how it works, unfortunately. But there is one uh, mass production business that I wanted to mention on here before we kind of ended things. And that's this company that I almost had an internship with, but I met um, the owner and founder. It's a woman by the name of Eleanor Turner. And she founded this company called The Big Favorite. Well, actually her grandfather did, but she rejuvenated it. And now it is a circular, um, like cycle brand. So they, they produce first layer garments like underwear, tank tops and t-shirts. And then when you're done with that t-shirt or it's just like, you know, got sweat stains, it's worn out. Instead of donating it, there's a QR code on the back of the shirt that you scan and you ship it back to them. And they recycle the shirt 100% and turn it into a new one. And it's like, yes, wow. I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, I will I'll be sure include, to include a link to that in the show notes so everybody can go check it out. 
yeah, thought I might hype them up too. <laughs> and your book recommendation, I feel like we need to have a book club for um, oh, Company yeah. of One. I feel like everybody needs to read it. I, I normally like that. can't manage business books, but this seems really important for almost all of the listeners right now. <laughs> yeah, it's not just it's not just about being a one person managing a whole company. Like you can have a company of one mentality while still being a CEO of a company with thousands of people working under you. You know, it's, totally. it's, a, men- totally. it's a mentality, not like a practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I think that's kind of what's missing in a lot of the business that exists right now. That right. that that mentality and that level of accountability and sort of just uh, compassion is missing. It was so nice to talk to you today. You too, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to Daisy May for taking the time to talk to me. Please do yourself a favor and check out her work right now. You can find her on Instagram at Rebloomed Design, and I will also include that link in the show notes. She's working on a ton of super cool new stuff, so give her a follow. I'm just so excited to see what she does next. I mean, I like I said, I was so excited when I saw her work on Instagram. You will be too. Also, do you think we need to have a clothes horse book club that begins with the book she just recommended? It's called A Company of One. It sounds like a very important reading for all of the small business owners in our community, and I think it really sort of supports the clothes horse mission of, you know, supporting small businesses. So let me know what you think about that idea. You know, you might not know this from listening to the podcast, but I have so much social anxiety, anxiety at parties, at work, on business trips, at trade shows, you name it. And I'm realizing after, you know, about a year of being at home with just Dustin and the cats that a lot of that stems from this feeling of just like otherness about my background, about my story, about just who I am. And really like for the first time ever in a very surprising way, Close Horse is giving me this opportunity to just be my true self to share with you who I really am. And by some miracle, you all like me and continue to listen. This has helped reduce my social anxiety so much. Like it's been transformative. I don't I don't want to go back to my old life. So now my new favorite thing is to talk to new people from our community. In the past, I would have just shied away from that. And It's so awesome to get to know all of you. You're all so smart and thoughtful and interesting. And I plan on doing a lot more of these small conversations in future episodes. So stay tuned. And speaking of members of our community, next, we're going to listen to a highly educational conversation that I had with Alex of St. Evans. I swear, Alex deserves a trophy, like a huge one that proclaims, most prepared and well-researched guest ever. I learned so much from her and I'm so grateful for all the work she put into our conversation. So let's just jump right into it. Why don't you tell everyone who you are? So my name is Alex. I'm based in New York City and I own a vintage clothing brand called St. Evans. 
Um, I sell through a website, so it's online only for the time being. I do some pop-ups in markets here and there. My background, so I studied journalism. I come from a journalism background, print specifically, and I have worked in customer service for, I guess, like 15 years now. Uh, I've been a bartender most of that time, but I have done uh, fashion retail on and off during that as well. And what made you decide to start a vintage business? So I have always been really into vintage. I grew up with um, – I have family on both sides that are borderline hoarders. Um, <laughs> it's always been a family joke that my grandparents on my dad's side keep absolutely everything. And, <laughs> you know, growing up, I didn't really think much of it. And, you know, I'd go visit my grandma and – all the toys that she would take out for us as kids were my dad and his siblings' toys. So I was playing with Legos from the 60s, Lincoln Logs from the 60s, um, you know, all this stuff. And so I grew up actually surrounded by a lot of vintage and antique pieces. And mm-hmm. my aunt and my mom would drive me to flea markets and antique sales, and it was not something I was into as a kid. And then as I got a little older – I really started to understand the appeal and really started to appreciate it and became really personally interested in vintage. And slowly that interest kind of expanded to where I had a lot of friends coming to me about where should I go thrifting or, you know, do you want to come shopping with me and help me shop? And it got to the point where I was like, I really enjoy doing this. It's something I love. And maybe I should expand it into something where I'm actually helping people do this on a bigger scale. So you reached out to me because you have some knowledge that you're going to share that is really important and it's going to be very educational for me too, which is how to determine if something is vintage or contemporary when you're shopping. Because I was telling you, I'm always seeing something cute from afar. I run over, I pull it off the rack, and it's from Old Navy, like every single time. So many times. Which is not, like, there's nothing wrong. Like, I I should still just buy it anyway. Like, who cares if it says Old Navy? But it's just one of those things that happens. Like, I can no longer assume that a print or even a silhouette makes it vintage because that's just not true anymore. You know, retailers have gotten smarter, and most of them use vintage inspiration to develop new products. So it's really hard to tell the difference just, like, you know, with a casual glance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can see something that looks straight out of the 70s but was made last year. So those sort of style cues and just looking at the general visual aesthetic of a garment is these days not enough to really be able to tell when it was actually made. Yeah, yeah. So what are your tricks? Okay, so the story that you had reposted that I actually responded to you about was asking for general thrifting tips. So I kind of wanted to go over just a few basic tips before I get into the vintage stuff. Okay. So, because I know that there are a lot of people who didn't grow up thrifting, haven't spent a lot of time in thrift stores, and it can be intimidating. You know, Mm -hmm. really huge. There's a ton of stuff, and people just don't even know where to start. So um, my biggest rule is to give yourself time. Mm. I, I rarely ever spend less than an hour in a thrift store, even the really small ones, 
just, you know, go when you're feeling enthusiastic and you're feeling patient, you're in a good mood, because if you go in and you're feeling rushed, you are going to get frustrated really easily, you're probably not going to find anything, and then you're not going to feel great about going back to the thrift store next time. It's true. That is so smart. I hate when I'm rushing through a thrift store. You, you just you, you have to spend the time. You have to dig. When I look at a rack, I am basically touching every single garment on that rack, every single one, because, you don't, you know, if you skip five pieces, that one amazing piece might be in that chunk that you, that you skipped over. So you have mm-hmm. to give yourself that time. So once you do find something that you like on the rack, the first thing I do is check the hard no stain spots. And this is something you've talked about before, but check the crotch and check the armpit. Did you call this a hard nose stain spot? Yes. <laughs> my hard nose. Um, you know, a crotch stain, I, you just got to skip it. I, that's, and, and, of course, as a reseller especially, I can't sell something with a crotch stain. And no matter how good your laundry and your stain treatment skills are, some things just aren't going to come out. And with that type of stain, it's not worth the risk. It's true. It's true. I mean, we all have had our own personal experiences with some crotch stains. And they do not come out, no matter what you do. If someone who's listening to this has a tip, please send it my way. I mean, I just think they're fabric. There's certain molecules that just bind to fabric forever. Absolutely. And another one of those, actually, that you bring that up is the, uh, I guess it's a, it used to be aluminum, but now it's some other chemicals, the deodorant. Mm-hmm. That's what causes that pit stain. It's not actually sweat. And mm-hmm. those pit stains are really, really stubborn. They're so hard to get out. So that's another stain that I'm really weary of because chances are it's not going anywhere. And yeah. it's just, you know, it's not appealing to people. It's hard to sell something with visible pit stains. So another thing, and this is something you've also discussed in previous episodes, is to check the fabric contents. Um, natural fibers are generally going to last longer. Those are going to give you that longevity in the piece, and you want to learn how to properly care for your garments. It's definitely going to help you pick things that last. Um, One thing that I really love about vintage is that I feel this affection towards older pieces, and I actually feel an obligation to care for them because they've made it this far. Mm -hmm. It would be so sad that if a dress could be worn for 50 years, it makes it to me, and then I destroy it. That's just so sad. Yeah. So that's another thing I really love about vintage. Um, one more thing, I always test any functional elements. So zippers, buttons, make sure that they work, make sure that they're there. Um, if there's any elastic on the piece, do a stretch test. Elastic will get stiff or crunchy over time. So these things can be replaced or fixed. It's really a personal preference of whether you are the kind of person who is going to fix this stuff. I'm super willing to make these small fixes. I have a tailor. I have a cobbler. I have people that can help me make bigger changes that I'm not comfortable doing. But if you're the kind of person who says, I'm going to take that to the tailor tomorrow, you you, you know you're never going to go, then don't don't buy the the top with the missing buttons thinking that you're going to fix it if you just know you're not going to. I mean, this is such good advice because I think a recurring theme on Instagram when we're all talking about this stuff is everybody's mountain of clothes that they plan to repair (laughs) and I'm I'm the same boat I'm the same you know yeah I've done it too I've had a pair of pants that have sat on my desk for three months before I ever take it in and now that I'm running a business I obviously have gotten a lot better about that but 
you know, you just have to know yourself, know your limitations, and also know how much time, effort, and or money you're willing to spend to repair something. Mm-hmm. You know, some things are worth it and some things aren't. Yeah. And uh, the, the more tailoring, the more adjustments, visits to the cobbler that you make, the more you'll have, you'll have a better understanding of what people are able to do and how much things are going to cost, and that helps you factor in that cost to the price of what you're paying for something. Yes, yes, so smart. So, again, know, you know, finding a good tailor, someone that you really like working with and or learning how to sew, even if that means just minor adjustments, um, those are really, really helpful if thrifting is something that you want to get into. I already feel like you've probably changed so many people's lives. <laughs> I, again, I, anything I can do to help people get out there and really be – more interested in resale and buying used garments is amazing. It's something we should all be doing a lot more of. There's just no reason for us to be buying so much new stuff. There's so much clothes out there already, and most of it ends up in the landfill. Mm-hmm. There's, like, way more clothes in the world than people need right now, so it blows my mind that more clothes keep getting made. <laughs> it's crazy. It's so crazy, yeah. Wild. Okay, so getting into vintage identification. So a really great place to start that's super straightforward is where was this garment made? So if the garment was made here in the U.S., the chances that you're looking at a vintage garment just went way up. Mm-hmm, so true. I have some numbers here that actually reflect the percentage of apparel, so that's clothing and shoes, uh, sold in the U.S., how much of it was made here. So the stats I have are starting in the 1960s. Um, as you go back in time before that, you're going to find clothing is more and more localized. Pretty much close to 100% of clothing is going to be local way back in the day. There are going to be some exceptions, but for the most part, you know, this, this globalization of garment manufacturing clothes being sent all over the world wasn't really a thing pre the 1950s and 60s. So, in the 60s, 95% of clothing sold in America was made here. Wow. By the 70s, you're down to 75%. So it's going down, but not a huge jump. Uh, between the 70s and 80s, it's only 70%, so only a 5% decrease. Then in the 90s, you're now down to 50%. So it's a pretty big jump. So from the 60s to the 90s, you're going from 95% to 50%. By the year 2000, you're now down to 29%, and currently we are now 2% of pieces sold here are made in the States. Wow. So, you know, you see that big shift mostly in the 90s to 2000s. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 90s, the U.S. government uh, created a lot of trade policies, most notably uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, in 94. So these policies basically wiped out restrictions on duties and imports with clothing manufactured overseas. So with these barriers removed, American retailers really started to push on that cheap overseas production, which is why you see that huge drop from the 50% in 1990 to the 2% that we see now. Wow. Yeah. So... Again, if it is made in the USA, there's a good chance that it is a vintage garment just because such few garments were being made here after the 2000s. And like you've discussed in previous episodes, uh, vintage is 20 years or older. Mm-hmm. So right now we're looking at around the year 2000. In 2000, fast fashion was still 
it's not what we know it as now, but it, it does freak me out to do that math and realize that we're just a few years away from the early fast fashion of, say, 2005, 2006 being vintage. Isn't that wild to it's think about? It's so weird. It's so yeah. Weird, but we are getting to that point, which is going to kind of change how we identify vintage within the next, like, 5, 10, 20 years. But we're not quite there yet, so my tips will stand for a whole while. <laughs> Good, good. We'll have, to, we'll have to touch back in, like, in, like, five years and just see, like, exactly. where we are. <laughs> a little update. Yeah. So, some interesting stats I hear, have here to go along with that is, so, in the year 1960, so, when 95% of clothing was being made here, the average American household is spending about $500 a year on clothing and shoes. So, with inflation, that's equal to about $4,300 today. So this was about 10% of a household's annual budget, and the mm-hmm. average person was buying fewer than 25 garments a year. So you look at today, and the uh, average household spending actually has gone down. So we're now looking at around $1,700 a year, and that's from $4,000. we are now spending 3% of the average household annual budget on clothing. However, we're now averaging about 70 pieces of clothing per person annually. That's more than a piece per week. I know. It's crazy. I mean, I've lived that life. I, I know it I know absolutely. it too well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's so crazy that we were spending 10% of the household annual budget on clothing for fewer than 25 garments a year, and now we're at 3% on 70 pieces of clothing. Wild. wild. Yeah, it's super really wild. just goes to show you, yeah, how much our consumption has changed and just how many more garments are being put out now, which is another reason that when you're looking at a vintage piece, I always err on the side of assuming that it's newer than it is older because there just weren't as many garments back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. The chances that you're going to find something that's thrift store from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s are a lot lower than that you're going to find something from the 80s or 90s. Yeah. I mean, that alone, it, it kind of lays it out, like, very clearly, like, why, of course, when you go to the thrift store, there are 9,000 brand new things there and nine not brand new things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, if you're looking at a tag and this piece is not made in America, there are certain eras where uh, manufacturing was a lot more common in certain countries than others. So when you're talking about mass-produced garments, and of course, these are just kind of general. It's not hard and fast, but more commonly for pieces in the 1970s, which is kind of the beginning of this overseas garment production, you're going to see pieces that were made in Korea and Taiwan. In the 1980s, uh, less Korea, still Taiwan, you're now going to start seeing pieces made in China, and then you actually have a lot of pieces made in Eastern Europe. Oh, interesting. Yes. So then going into the 90s, you've got uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and then a lot more pieces are being made in China at this point. And then from the 2000s until now, so contemporary non-vintage pieces, the four countries that are manufacturing most clothing are China, Bangladesh, India, and Vietnam. So, again, these are hard and fast. However, if you do see a tag of something that was made in Korea, it's really, really unlikely that it was contemporary just because they aren't exporting garments the way that they were in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, same goes with, like, China. You know, this made-in-China thing wasn't really that big until 
kind of the 80s and more in the 90s and 2000s. If you do see made in China, you're probably looking at something newer. However, the exceptions to this are going to be high-end designer garments, which often meant styles that showcase techniques or fabrics that were specific to certain countries. So these pieces were made by skilled artisans, and they were imported for higher prices. They're going to be more expensive, higher-quality goods. So you're talking about embroidered silk and satin robes from China, beaded handbags from countries like Hong Kong and Japan, leather from Italy, this kind of thing, um, owning clothing from overseas. It used to be this luxury. It was reserved really only for the wealthy. You had to be this rich, worldly person to be importing clothing from another country. So if you do find a vintage piece that, you know, I found vintage that does say that it was made in China and it does seem to predate that mass production of Chinese goods from the 80s, mm-hmm. it definitely might have been. It's just going to be a higher quality garment. It's going to be something that somebody spent a lot of money to have made and then have imported from abroad. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a really good call out because when I do find vintage clothes with a made in China or really any overseas label in them, they are always such nice fabrics. Yes, absolutely. And, like, you know, you get this gorgeous Italian-made leather and uh, yeah. those really beautiful, like, beaded handbags from Hong Kong and Japan that I personally am just such a sucker for. <laughs> so those pieces are kind of the exception to that, you know, what country was this manufactured in that don't necessarily fall into that idea of where places are being mass-produced because these pieces weren't being created on such a large scale. Mm-hmm. So one more tip when it comes to origin country is, does this country still exist? <laughs> um, so countries like Yugoslavia or the USSR ceased to exist in the 90s. You do see these on tags. That's a pretty easy way to just automatically know that it's vintage. Uh, Hong Kong appears as British Hong Kong or the British Crown Colony of Hong Kong in any pieces that were made before 1997. So, again, automatically vintage. And if you see something like made in occupied Japan, then you know that that piece is from the post-World War II Allied occupation from uh, 1945 to 1952. So, again, if you see, you know, a country, I spend a lot of time on my phone when I'm thrifting, searching stuff and looking up information, specifics about each country, about when countries might have changed their names or added things like how Hong Kong was a British colony for a period of time. And those can help give you a window of when that piece is manufactured. So really identifying vintage is all about history. And Mm -hmm. I never thought of myself as being into history or being a history (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I have this journalism background, and so I am actually really good at research. And the more research I started doing into this, the more I realized that once you have an understanding of the history of garment work, the history of textile manufacturing, the history of globalization, it really helps you figure out where a piece, you know, where and when a piece is made. Vintage is history. Absolutely, it is. And the more you know, the easier it is to be able to tell when something is from. Yeah, yeah. So moving on from the origin country, you now have your fabrics and materials. So getting into more history again, the Federal Trade Commission mandated the Textile Production Identification Act in 1960. So this was the garment industry for the very first time mandating a label on clothing that said what materials it was made out of. So pre-1960, this is really not something that you were going to see. 
And from for about the first 10 years of this, most of the tags were actually disposable. They were paper tags. They were attached to them. So you go into the store, you see that it's made out of cotton, you get the piece home, take the tag off, and it's not going to remain on that garment. Right. Um, permanently affixed labels weren't actually required until 1972. So if you pick up a piece and it has that, you know, 100% cotton, 100% silk tag on it, there's a really, really good chance that that piece is from after 1972. Mm-hmm. That same year, the Trade Commission established the care labeling rule, which is the care instructions that we are all so familiar with. So, again, if you see that tag that says, you know, dry clean only, hand wash only, also most likely dates this piece from 1972 or later. It is funny to imagine a world in which you would buy something and not know how to take care of it or what it was made of. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's interesting. I think that people maybe had a better understanding of that on their own. I mean, I think so. Yeah, I don't think you needed that label really to tell you how to take care of your wool sweater because you only owned two wool sweaters, so you already knew how to take care of them. (laughs) Right, right, right. It is, you know, another thing, I mean, I'm just, like, putting a pin in this for myself to look into, but it's funny because it's true that most of these tags used to be paper. Even into the 80s, I feel like there were still paper tags in a lot of things. And somewhere along this line, we switched to these poly sewing labels that are obviously, like, not biodegradable. Um, mm-hmm. And possibly, I mean, no, I'm not even saying possibly. They're definitely more expensive to produce. I actually have, I have some information about tags that I will get into in a little oh, bit. Oh, good. I can't wait. Okay, cool. And not a ton of detail, but I do have some more on that. Okay. So, continuing with the fabrics and materials. So, a website that I reference really frequently is the VintageFashionGuild.org website. They are a super well-established organization with members all over the country, and these are people who have a lot of expertise in vintage, and they actually have members of the community that upload a lot of images of different tags and different things that you can use to reference, and I find this really helpful. Hmm. So, one of the things that they have on this website is actually a timeline of the first commercial use of manufactured fibers. So, synthetic fibers, you know, they didn't, they weren't always a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they weren't really a thing before the 1950s for apparel. So, when you look at this timeline, it actually also helps you kind of come up with benchmarks for when a piece might have been made. So, you have, for example, spandex wasn't used for manufacturing until 1959. So the piece has spandex in it. You know, it's not any older than that. Um, then you've got some things like Lyocell, which wasn't even invented until 1993, so that's even newer. Um, there was a trend from the 50s and 60s, so the beginning of these synthetic fibers, where you, a lot of trademark fibers were used that have this specific trademarked name. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the garment industry's way of, creating this excitement around synthetics and convincing the consumer that they were this new, the future of fashion and this super exciting thing. And by putting this trademark name on it, you're actually selling that, you know, oh, my polyester, which is Dacron brand polyester, is better than the competitors for whatever reason. Yeah, it's true. And they would do a lot of partnerships with uh, the CFDA to sort of do these, like, special name brand fiber fashion shows to be like, look, 
you know, Fortrell or whatever is yeah, a high end exactly. miracle fabric. Um, they really, really aggressively. I mean, it's like funny to think about that now because I, I guess you do see ads here and there for like cotton, right? Cotton has had. Yeah, but, right. It's the ads that you see now tend to only be for natural fibers. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. They are, they're like figuring out their audience here a little bit that maybe we don't want to hear more about spandex, but like it was standard in the 60s and 70s to see ads in magazines for just for fiber, not for a brand, you know, not for a line of clothing to be like, look at the miracles of, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on all the names right now, but I love to look at the ads. Yeah, Orlon was a big one for men and women. Lots of sweaters and pants and whatnot, but it was all plastic. Yep, so when you see these on the tags, uh, you kind of know that it's most likely from the 50s, possibly into the 70s, but most likely 50s and 60s. After the 70s, you really weren't going to be seeing this anymore. At this point, synthetics had gotten a pretty bad rap and bragging about your (laughs) Mm -hmm. trademark polyester. It wasn't cool anymore. So when you see those, that's a pretty good way to kind of narrow down that window. Um, another thing that's actually interesting, and this happened recently with a garment I sold. So some of these synthetics just stopped being used, and you can actually find out exactly when their manufacture date ended. Mm-hmm. So I recently sold this really fun uh, robe, this house coat, that was made out of Arnell triacetate. Which, what a name. Right, it's a mouthful. And that also appears on tags as, Melanie's Arnell, which is the brand name. Okay. So this is a synthetic fiber. It was developed for clothing again in the mid-1950s. It was super popular at first. By 1986, they actually discontinued its use because the U.S. government tightened its toxicity standards. And wow. Uh, yeah, this, one of the solvents that was being used in the production of this is pretty carcinogenic. So once they put these standards, they just stopped making it all together. So anything you have that's made out of Arnell triacetate is absolutely no older than 1986. Arnell triacetate. You know what? I think I've seen that on labels. Yeah, probably. It's You know, again, it was really popular when it first came out in the mid-50s. And again, it was just marketed as a fabric of the future and this high-tech you know, it it holds its color. And I do have to say, this robe that I sold recently was so vibrant. It was, I dated it to around the 1970s, and it was just in such amazing shape. The colors were so bright and vivid still after all these years, which uh-huh. is part of the marketing tactic of these textiles. My last uh, tip on fabric is that as ubiquitous as it is now, um, stretch denim wasn't actually invented until the late 1970s. So for the first 100-plus years of jeans existing, they were all 100% cotton. What a hard life. Right? <laughs> no stretch at all. So any jeans that you find in the thrift store that do have that 1% to 3% of added spandex, anything more than that, and, like, it's probably more contemporary because that's super stretchy jeggings-type stuff, which – actually posted about it in my stories recently, and I thought a, a lot of people were agreeing with me about being very upset about these, quote-unquote, jeans that are just all spandex. Oh, God, I hate them. Don't get me started. I feel, I mean, one, they're really bad for the environment. Two, if you wear them a whole day, they look like crap by the end of the day, and you have to constantly wash them all the time. Yeah. I mean, they're not jeans. To call no. them jeans 
it's just so silly to me because it's a, it's a different garment. Do you remember pajama jeans? I feel like that was like a late oh, 90s, early aughts, like infomercial. Yeah. So bad. So, yeah, so that stretch, that 1% to 3% of added Sandrex or added Lycra, that pretty much guarantees earpieces from probably the ladies or later, later, maybe from the 70s, but probably 80s, 90s, or more contemporary. I know this is a lot of information, and it can seem super overwhelming. <laughs> the more you reread this stuff, the more research you're doing, the more often you're revisiting these label resources and these websites that have this historical information, you will absorb it over time, and you'll slowly get better and better and faster at identifying these things. You will. You will. I think it's like you just have to get into the routine. It's going to be hard at first. So the next thing I have to talk about is the actual brand of the garment. So you mentioned tags before. So let's talk a little bit about tags. So the first big clue that you're looking at a vintage garment is if you've got this label that's really detailed. So pretty much all mass-produced garments these days have this really neutral, minimalist tag that's just one color of text and mm-hmm. no embellishment at all. Mm-hmm. If, like, go, if you go look in your closet now, you're going to be like, whoa, all of these <laughs> tags are the same. Yeah, it's true. Often the same font, even. <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. They're so simple. They're so basic. So one of the things that's so fun about vintage is that the tags themselves are a work of art. I've actually been in thrift stores and almost bought pieces that I didn't even like because I was so enamored with the tag. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm also guilty of that. <laughs> right? I'm like, this tag is so cool. It's got like a cute little embroidered illustration of a dancing lady, and I just love it so much. <laughs> and, like, the dress that it's on is not really that great, but I really want it anyways because the tag is so cute. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So, as you've discussed in previous episodes, every element of the garment adds to the cost. So, after a certain point when it really became all about mass manufacturing, about making money, about cutting down the cost of manufacturing, brands just stopped bothering with embroidered tags or tags that had multiple colors or little illustrations and funky typography. Like, that just really went out the window unless you're looking at pieces that are more high-end. Mhm. Mhm. So that is definitely a good hint that you might be looking at something vintage. So say you're looking at a piece now, you pull it up and it's got some random brand name that you've just never heard of before. So this is a point where again, like I said, you want to have time in the thrift store because now you're going to take out your phone and you're going to start doing a little bit of research. <laughs> And, again, this is why I spend so long. I'm in the thrift store for hours because I'm, you know, Google searching things in the middle of the aisle and looking at tags and doing comparisons. And, of course, this is because I'm selling vintage, so it's important to me that the stuff that I source is genuine vintage. If you're shopping for yourself, it doesn't matter as much. So, you know, you take out your phone, you Google this brand. First thing is first is does this brand still exist? So, Sometimes your result will be like, okay, this brand was bought out in 1978. It was absorbed by a bigger brand. It ceased to exist. So that's super easy. Now you have an end date for this piece. You know that it's not any older than 1978. Mm -hmm. So going back to what I had spoken about before, if this piece has a Karen instructions tag and it says, you know, hand wash only, now you have a really specific window. Now you actually know that you're looking at a piece that was manufactured and sold between 1972 and 1978. So, 
sometimes you're not so lucky. So you search the brand name and you just can't find anything. Mm-hmm. So you combine the brand name with search terms like brand, clothing, vintage, company, and just nothing showing up. So pretty much all modern retailers have some kind of online presence. So if you can't find anything at all, that's actually a really good sign. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, yeah. I mean, think about it now, too. If it was even from 2000, there's a pretty good chance it exists on the Internet somewhere because we've had the Internet since then. So that is a pretty – I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I find some weird tags at the thrift store. I'm sure you do, too, weird brands where I'm like, I, I can't piece it together because looking at the garment and the fabric content and stuff, like, it feels contemporary to me. But then I – I've never heard of this brand. I Googled the brand. I can't find anything. And that's because there's so many like random private label brands out there. But you can, you just have to use all of the information that Alex is presenting here. Like you have to, that's why you need an hour. (laughs) It it is. It's building blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very rarely are you going to look at a tag and see something that immediately lets you know what window it's from, more than likely you're going to have to use three different elements of the piece and kind of combine those together to then give you a better idea. Yes. So, again, finding nothing at all on the Internet, no website, you don't see this piece, um, you know, sometimes it'll be linked to a bigger retailer like this brand was being sold at Macy's or Nordstrom. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't find any of that at all, that's a really good sign. And if the only things that are coming up are people reselling pieces, so on Etsy or eBay, that's also a good sign because, again, that probably means that this is it is vintage. So yeah. if you do that search and you find the brand does still exist, So it's got a website, it's got a Wikipedia page. One thing you can look at is has this brand changed its name, its logo, and its tag over the years, and how long has this brand been around? So if it's a newer brand that's only been around, you know, it was founded 18 years ago, easy, not vintage. If this is a brand like Levi's has been around for 100-plus years, now you have to start looking into more specifics. So there are, like I said before, there are a lot of label resources online that have really well-researched resources and guides that have a bunch of photos of labels from different eras that you can use to compare. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, the brand Sears, they use the full Sears Roebuck and Company name on all of their tags until the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So in the early 70s, they had this full rebrand, and they simplified the name of the store to just Sears. So that gives you kind of a really good demarcation of does this piece have the full brand name on it? If so, it's probably from before the early 70s. Yeah, wow. That's something, you know, it's so funny that you are even bringing that up because I was thinking the other day about how I feel like the vintage that I find most often out here, which I was telling you, like, it's hard to find vintage out where I live in terms of clothing. It's always Sears and Roebuck Company stuff, which is awesome. You know, it's like a good way to guarantee that it's vintage, but they seem to be very popular where I live now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's super interesting. That makes sense. You know, they might have had a really big store presence in your area, or maybe they were doing a ton of catalog sales in your area because people were maybe not as close to physical locations that they could shop. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, that's, like, one of those tricks. And, you know, there are a lot of different brands. So, for example, like Victoria's Secret, I now know what the tags look like from each era. So I can pretty quickly look at a Victoria's Secret piece and just know looking at the label, like, okay, this piece is probably from 
around the 70s or 80s or oh, some of the older tags. So it's, you know, from the very beginning of the brand in the 70s. And the more you look at these things, again, the more you'll start to recognize these patterns and these changes that the brands are making. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I love some vintage Victoria's Secret. So pretty. Like that 80s, like robes and nightgowns and stuff are so beautiful. I get really excited when I find one of those persons. Oh, yeah. I mean, the stuff that they made was really, really nice, which, you know, things have changed. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Making is uh, not quite the same quality as it was once, <laughs> once in, uh, back in the day. So there are sometimes going to be additional tags on top of the care instructions, the materials, and the brand name or the size. So something that you're going to see in a lot of vintage garments are union labels. Mm, I was so, wondering if you're going to bring that up. Yeah, I am such a nerd about the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. <laughs> I am just really passionate about the topic. I think it's really, really cool. They played such a role in labor rights in America. It was the biggest labor union in America that had a primarily female membership, and a lot of these women were women of color and immigrants. Mm-hmm. And there's so much history there. I could go off on that for hours. It's a whole separate conversation. Um, so that union was created in 1900, and that was by far the biggest uh, garment union in the state. So it is going to be the most common tag you're going to see. They were absorbed by another union in 1995. So if you do see that, it's abbreviated as ILGWU. So mm-hmm. when you see that tag, that means that the piece is automatically vintage. It's from before 95. They changed their label eight times in this about 100-year span, but really there's only three main labels that you're going to find. The really early labels, sadly, they just most of those pieces just didn't really make it until now. Um, some of them exist, you know, in private collections, in museums, but these are not really pieces that you're going to come across in the thrift store. So the three main labels that you are going to see are from the manufacturing era between the 50s to 60s, the 60s to 70s, and then from the 70s to 90s. And these three iterations of the tag all look relatively similar, but they have some minor changes. So, like, the initial tag didn't include the little trademark, that R with a circle around it. That was introduced until the next iteration. And the very last version of the tag is actually, so the previous tags were blue and white. The very last version of the tag is red, white, and blue because in the 80s and the 70s, there was this big resurgence in, because so much clothing was being manufactured overseas at that point, people were really pushing that made in America patriotism of buying something was made by a labor union here. And so that red, white, and blue tag kind of represents that. So another tag you're going to see frequently is the Walmart, which is that sort of swirly triangle-shaped logo. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it a lot in, like, coats, pants, things that are made out of wool. So this is an industry certification mark. It is used to identify that this piece met the quality standards set by the Walmart company, which was actually founded by Australian wool farmers. Ah. So. The Walmart was launched in 1964, so it was actually created as a way for the wool industry to combat the synthetics that emerged during World War II. So during this boom that we just talked about where brands were, you know, advertising their their 
Arnell triacetate and their Orlon acrylic. <laughs> the, the wool industry was like, we're getting beat out by these synthetics. So in order to compete, we created this Walmart company, we launched this Walmart brand, and it basically was a way for them to separate wool as being a higher quality, more consistent garment that was going through this sort of quality assurance process and so that it was it was better and worth spending more money on than the synthetics. Mm-hmm. So they then introduced the wool blend mark in 1971. This is the slippery slope, really. <laughs> that's, that's when you start to get the wool mixed with other fibers. And it's interesting yep. that happened in 71 because that really is when you start to see the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. So, again, when you do see the wool mark or the wool blend, you've got these uh, kind of, I don't know, pillars, I guess, where you know that it's from – Later than 64, if it's got the wool blend, it's from after 1971. And so, then all the sweaters were synthetic for the rest of time, I swear. Synthetic <laughs> <laughs> and manufactured abroad. A majority of the sweaters are going to be contemporary, a lot of acrylic. Um, mm-hmm. Even the 80s, 80s, 90s pieces, it's a lot of uh, rainy. So that's pretty much everything. I mean, of course, you, I can go into way more detail, but that's like a pretty standard guide on, you know, your tags, your branding, your manufacture date, your materials. So there are a few general uh, style, like style reference points, I guess. So shoulder pads were first popular in women's uh, apparel in the 30s and 40s, but you're not really going to find 30s or 40s garments at thrift stores. If you do, you should go play the lottery immediately afterwards. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, go load up on scratch-offs or something yes. because you are so lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So generally, when you see shoulder pads in a piece, especially those big, foamy ones, sometimes they're literally just chunks of foam with, like, 10 stitches attached to the shoulder of a piece. That pretty firmly places a garment in the 80s, maybe the early 90s. People just stop doing that because it's terrible. <laughs> okay, so I just have to jump in and say, I mean, I 100% agree, but in, gosh, I want to say it was around, let's say 2009, I was in a meeting at work, and I won't say the name of the company, but it was a very, like, hipster mass retailer, and someone put out the idea that we should start selling shoulder pads separately so people could put them in their clothes because they thought it was going to be a really huge trend. And I was Mm -hmm. just like, no, there's like no way that is going to happen. Like shoulder pads are the worst. I know someone who hears this is going to have a different opinion and I want to hear it, but I hate them. (laughs) I I do think that there are, especially when you go to the high end designers, there are some people that are creating these really artful, structured, kind of more avant-garde pieces that do involve that really strong shoulder shape. But again, mm-hmm. that's not the stuff you're going to find in the thrift store. No, and a I good mean, shoulder pad has a lot of expensive construction attached to it. Like, you can do it well. It's embedded into the garment. It's yeah, it's not this strong. weird flap. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's part of the construction of the actual garment. So yeah. It's more like these foamy chunks that are sewn in. I've seen ones before that are literally Velcro, <laughs> which is just, I, yeah. Sometimes I'll leave them in if it 
if the, the construction and the shape of the garment will be altered by removing it. But for the most part, I do remove shoulder pads and I sell stuff because they just don't think it's a good look. <laughs> they sit strangely. You know the what I mean? The are always weird, and a lot of times you can actually see the shape of the pad. <laughs> yes! It's just, it's just off to me, and I'm, I'm not a big fan. But yeah, me neither. <laughs> I do have to say that when I do see it, it I, I, I guess I like them for the reason that it does help me identify that the piece probably yes. <laughs> So they're not completely worthless. <laughs> so another thing that's interesting is, so you know what? Tagless, where you've got the the brand and everything printed directly inside the fabric, like the nape of the neck. So that wasn't launched until 2002 by Hanes, of course. So anything you find that has that label printed directly inside the neck of the garment, that's not vintage. Yeah. So again, 2002. So I guess in the next few years, technically, those like very <laughs> first pieces will slowly start to become vintage. But as a general rule of thumb, if the tag is printed in it, I just assume that it's not vintage for a while. I personally, most of my expertise lies in pieces post the 1950s. When you're getting into garments before that, because they don't have these tags and labels and there were less industry standards, it starts to get into crazy detail where you are looking at what type of stitches were being used or... Uh, how the zipper was placed, and it becomes a lot more technical. So, again, when it comes to identifying vintage, you could really just go off on an endless rabbit hole of what's the construction of this garment, how does it look like it was made, what type of stitches are used on the lining. But this is just a general overview for people that kind of want to dip their toe into that, and it gives you a good starting place of what to look for if you are doing your own research online to try and figure out what a piece is from. Those are pretty much my my general tips. Um, this is something that I've done a lot of research on. Obviously, I have a lot of information compiled. I am in the process of trying to put together, like, a digital download guide so that people could actually – I have a document that I could share with people that would kind of have a lot of this information all in one place so it's easy to look at and easy to reference. And eventually, this is something I would actually really like to make into a book. I love that. I think that's an amazing idea. There's so much history there, and I could go into so much detail on every single topic, but I feel like there's a lot to talk about. And mm-hmm. as we see a rise in people going to thrift stores and looking for used clothing, I feel like this information is becoming more and more valuable to your average consumer. I think so, too. And, and this this brings me to something that I am always reinforcing with listeners and on social media, which is think about all the stuff Alex just said that she has to think about every time she goes sourcing for stuff to sell in her vintage store. Like that is why we don't pay $4 for things that we're buying from a vintage seller. You know what I mean? Because you are working. The research alone, you know, sometimes I spend two hours just researching one garment. And even then, you know, nothing I – generally, most of the things I sell are under $100. Sometimes I have certain coats and pieces that will be a little bit more than that, but I'm not really selling high-end or designer pieces. I'm putting a lot of time and effort in, and I'm still, I think, offering things at a pretty affordable price. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. I can tell when I'm thrifting and I see someone who is sourcing for their business because – they are on their phone the whole time looking things yep. up. It's not like a fun shopping spree where they're just like, 
piling stuff in the cart. Like they are working. So I just like to say yeah, that all I mean, the time. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, it is it is a lot of work. And the thing is, is that as a business too, I have to keep all of my price margins in mind. And you know, if I pick something up at a thrift store, pay for it, take it home and then realize that it's not actually vintage. Now I have this thing that I spent money on and spent the time, Ugh. you know, working home and I know I can't sell it. Yeah. So I really have to do my research while I'm in the store to avoid having to have all these excess garments when I get home. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Something actually I really wanted to quickly mention was I just recently listened to your episode where you were talking to some of your listeners on the Close Hotline. And one of your listeners had called in asking about the drop model that a lot of online sellers use, myself mm-hmm. included in that. And you would ask, you know, if anyone who used that model had additional feedback. And I kind of just wanted to talk about why I personally use that model and why it works for me. Sure. So I release new product with some exception every week. So I do a new collection every Thursday at noon, and these collections are generally between, like, 10 to 20 pieces, depending on the week. And I start doing previews on Sunday, so I post a few pieces per day previewing everything that's going to be available. And then on Wednesdays, I post everything that's going to be coming out in that collection with additional information like all the sizing, measurements. Uh, what era is from, anything else relevant, and then open up, you know, if people want to DM me with additional questions. That way, on Thursday, when I do the release, people are prepared, and they know what it is that they're shopping for and that it's going to fit them and that it's something that they're actually going to wear. And one of the big reasons that this model works so well for me is because it gives me a schedule and a structure that I find is so necessary for running my own business, especially out of my house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get that. Same thing with the podcast. That's why I'm like Sunday and Wednesday because I need that routine to get yeah. stuff done. Absolutely. I know a lot of vintage sellers that just, you know, will be like story sale tomorrow or, you know, new stuff going up tomorrow, maybe the next day, depending on how quickly I can get this done. And I know myself. And if I did it like that, then I would let two weeks go by without doing anything. And, you know, I, just, it, it, I, I know me. I know yeah. I'm organized, but it's easy to procrastinate. It's easy to let yourself slip when you're your own boss. And I think also by setting up my business in this way, I also have this consistency in my ordering. So when I release products on Thursday, that's when I sell a majority of my products. I do sell things throughout the week randomly, and I know that that's going to increase as I grow. But as of right now, the majority of my sales are happening on one day, and it really helps me manage the packing and shipping element of it. I get mm-hmm. all of my orders. I can pack them all at the same time, and I can have one or two days a week designated to shipping. Whereas if I was just selling stuff randomly throughout the week, then I feel like, you know, it, it becomes difficult. It becomes way easier for me to forget to pack something or take too long to ship out pieces and it just becomes less organized and Mm -hmm. I just really like having it all in that one place that makes it a lot easier for me. Yeah, and it sounds so stressful to just be like, I don't know, I love a routine, so you're preaching to the choir right now. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, and you you know, again, you're your own boss with closed horse and it really just, I need that schedule, I need that consistency, Mm -hmm. it keeps me on top of things and 
I also think that from the customer perspective, I feel like it gives the customers a consistency too so that they because one thing I do have to say is that for vintage sellers that don't follow the drop model, they just release like randomly whenever they feel like it, you feel like you have to constantly be checking because then you're going to miss that piece. You know, mm-hmm. you're gonna get on Instagram too late and it's already going to be sold. And so with my drop model, yes, not everyone is going to get everything they want. There are some pieces sell, you know, a minute after I upload them and it's kind of a, a race to the finish. But at the same time, I do feel like, it doesn't put that pressure on people all week long where they feel like there's that FOMO. And instead you can kind of sit down, strategize, understand everything I'm releasing, look at the sizing and kind of decide what it is that you even want to try and get versus seeing the post, knowing that it's for sale right now, and then worrying that if you don't buy it right now, even if you're not sure you want it, it's going to be sold in the next hour. So you just got to pull the trigger. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. I, I agree. I mean, I know that feeling very well. Yeah. I mean, we've all done there. I've, I've done it, you know, where I, like, was like, oh, my God, I need this. And then I ordered it, and I was like, maybe I didn't need that. But I felt like if I didn't buy it, it wasn't going to be available. And so I purchased something that I really didn't need. I mean, and it's it's a real phenomenon. You know, working on the buying side in retail, like, this is something that we would try to mimic all the time. Like, how can we create this illusion that if you don't buy it right now, you're not going to get it? like putting that fear of scarcity into the customer, it happens all the time. Absolutely. And I mean, you discussed it before in the episode I was just referencing where, you know, that model has really been the driving force for a lot of brands like Supreme Mm -hmm. and anything that follows that model. That's kind of the entire, that's the whole structure of the company. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely worked places where they were like, okay, well, why don't we only, like, put 50 units available for sale on the site, and then next week we'll put, like, 5,000, you know? It's 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 a real thing, and it's, uh, it's so gross. It, like, makes my skin crawl to think about it. But it's because they look at people like you or the other small makers on social media and, you know, across the Internet who sell stuff as fast as they list it because people, like, love them you know, love what they do, want to support them, love their product, all that stuff. They see that. And rather than seeing like, oh, I think the customers are really engaging with this seller because, you know, of their connection to them, this connection, this relationship they've built, they're like, it's because there's not much stuff. That's why they're buying it. Like, no, it's so much more than that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things that go into it. And I understand that the drop model can be frustrating for people. I know that, you know, I get messages every week of people who are really disappointed because they got on at 12.01 and the piece they wanted was gone. And at the end of the day, that's the thing with vintage, that there is only one of every piece. And there's always going to be someone disappointed that they didn't get something, no matter what model I choose to move forward with. True. It's true. You know, if I do a drop or I do random or I do story sale, like, no matter how I do it, someone's going to miss out because there is only one of each piece and there's only so much I can do. So I feel like the drop model just for me personally makes the most sense in keeping my business consistent and helping me grow and helping just, I don't know, keep keeping me in line because I can be, you know, lazy and I can procrastinate. <laughs> I just I need that structure. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. And you know, you're the first person who said that. But I'm like, yeah, I totally get that. Like, that is that is me. And Dustin, my husband, will be like, why are you stressing out? Like, you can do whatever you want. I'm like, no, I can't. This is like, no, I have people who expect it. 
I always say, thank God everything doesn't fit me. (laughs) It's such an easy way to, like, let go of something because I'm like, oh, this just doesn't look right on me. You know, it's it's a little bit too small or too big or whatever. And, like, it's just instead of being like, well, I could get it tailored, I'm just like, let it go. Like, that's your sign. That's the universe. Yeah. This isn't for you. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, if I do find a piece where I'm like, wow, that's really cool. I'm tempted to keep it. And I put it on and it's just that perfect fit, then again, that's the sign that maybe this is the one thing that I should be holding on to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good point. <laughs> well, I'm so glad we got to talk today. You're literally the most prepared person I've ever talked to for the podcast. Oh, I'm, so so, I'm so delighted. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm not going to lie, I do have like several pages of notes here. Um, <laughs> Again, that's my journalism background coming in. I, you know, want to make sure that all the information I'm providing here is at least accurate. I don't want to be giving people these, you know, benchmarks and historical notes that are not correct. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, no, I, I super appreciate it. And I know all of the people who are going to listen to this are going to feel the same way. That makes me so happy. I really, really hope that whoever is listening finds this really useful and helpful and I'm also always happy to help people. Um, I have had people reach out to me with vintage garments that they own or they found being like, hey, is there, you know, anything you could do to help me maybe date this or narrow down what it might be from? And I am super, super happy to do that. I'm obviously a huge fashion history nerd. This is all very fun for me. So Mm -hmm. if anyone has any pieces that they want help identifying, feel free to reach out to me. DM me. I'm on Instagram at wearsingevens. That's W-E-A-R underscore S-P period E-V-E-N-S. Um, shoot me a message, send me pictures, send me photos of the tags. Super happy to do a little research and get to the bottom of it with you. Yeah, it'll be like Antiques Robe Show. Yeah. But for clothes. <laughs> I told you that you were going to learn so much from Alex, and Alex is going to be a regular contributor to Clotheshorse.world, so it's one more reason for you to follow the blog. I want to speak briefly about the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, or the ILGWU. Somehow the letters are more of a mouthful than the actual words. Um, But Alex touched on this in her amazing lesson. And I think I could do a whole episode just about this union. So I'm not going to go too much into it. But I did want to say that the International Ladies Garment Workers Union no longer exists. Well, why? Well, it's it's all of the things that you would probably expect if you've been listening to Clothes Horse long enough. You know, for one, more and more retailers moved their production overseas because, you know, it was way cheaper to pay someone in another country poverty wages than to pay someone here in the U.S. a living wage and benefits, which, you know, the union rightfully expected and advocated for, Right. And the union found it nearly impossible to organize garment workers here in the U.S., particularly in L.A., for all the reasons we've discussed in the past. You know, organizing on a shop-by-shop basis was impossible given the increase of these sort of like fly-by-night contractors who were people who were like not technically employees. I hate that. I hate that whole thing. I mean, that's what gig work is, right? And I have so many friends who are just permanent contract workers in other fields, right? Well, these contractors, as you know, were often paid by the piece and frequently made less than minimum wage. This still happens. It would be amazing for them to be unionized. 
They also found that the number of workers that were willing to take striking or fired workers' jobs, because, you know, every worker was living in poverty, it made it harder for the union to take collective action by striking because it didn't really have an impact on the employer. They would just be like, cool, peace, and bring in some new people. Also, the uncertain immigration status of many of the workers, it made it challenging to sign people up. You know, they felt as if joining a union could maybe result in retaliation from their employers, which is illegal, but doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. And that could result in deportation, or they also were just afraid that maybe even the mere act of signing up for a union would get them into trouble with immigration authorities. So all the jobs were going overseas, and it was really impossible to sign up new shops here in the U.S. So the power and the size of the union shrank pretty considerably to basically the lowest it had been in 90 years. 90 years before that, it had not existed for reference. So it was really bad, very the weakest point that the union had ever hit. And that was in 1995. So they merged with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union then to kind of try to put some more weight behind the effort. But it just still wasn't enough. And so in 2004, they merged with the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union to form Unite Here. And it would be safe to say that there are far more hotel and restaurant employees in Unite Here than there are garment workers. You know, unions need to come back if we're ever going to see an improvement in the conditions and wages that are experienced by, you know, garment workers, anyone working in the retail or fast food industries, and of course, in warehouses. And I want so badly to do an episode about unions. So if you know anyone who's an expert, send them my way. One last thing about the ILGWU, which, oh God, that is like the hardest series of letters to say together. Please try that yourself. (laughs) You'll see what I'm saying. (laughs) Anyway, the union, how about I just say that, sponsored a jingle writing contest amongst its members in the 1970s. And the winning jingle, which went on to play on ads nonstop throughout the 70s, was called Look for the Union Label. And apparently this song was playing so constantly and was so catchy that if you even mention it to people who were children or young adults in the 70s, they will sing the lyrics to you. (laughs) I would love to sing this song to you, but it would be just mortifying for all of us. So instead, I'm going to try to give you my spoken word poetry version of it. Uh, I guess this is sort of this week's installment of the Clothes Horse Cultural Corner. It goes like this. Look for the union label when you're buying a coat, dress, or blouse. Remember, somewhere our union's sewing Our wage is going to feed the kids and run the house. We work hard, but who's complaining? Thanks to the ILG, we're paying our way. So always look for the union label. It says we're about to make it in the USA. (laughs) Imagine if they hadn't sung it, but it was just this very unappealing spoken word version that I just did. (laughs) Anyway, fortunately, they had 
all kinds of incredible artists of the time sing this. And the song was so famous that at one point it was parodied on a late 70s episode of Saturday Night Live in a fake commercial for the Dope Growers Union. Clearly a timeless jam. Please do yourself a favor, Google it and listen to it. One last thing before we end this episode, you know, by the time you hear this, unless you get in between the hours of midnight and 3.33 a.m., clotheshorse.world will be live. And I can't wait for all of you to see all of the incredible content that we have. I'm so proud and so grateful for the amazing team that's been working on it. And I mean, we've been like working really hard. You know, there's Meg, our content producer. She is kind of the first person you talk to about your submission and she helps you shape it. She literally has Zoom meetings with potential contributors to help them talk through their plan and kind of hone their message. Uh, We've got Haley, our design systems lead. So she basically created our website, you know, and all of the visual things there. And she does things like Google Analytics and whatnot, things that are, you know, very important, but not necessarily say my skill set. We've got Carrie, our executive editor, who will really help refine and fine tune your submissions. And she has a background in publishing. So we are so lucky to have her. She created this amazing sort of like queue in Asana, which is like a project management app. She created this amazing queue for every submission that kind of like moves it along to each of us through the process. And it's made all of this so much easier, you know, because we don't want your submission to fall through the cracks. And we have Katie, our copy editor and fact checker. She's from beautiful Astoria, Oregon. I know a place you've all heard of. And uh, I have heard rave reviews about her from Becky at Shift in Astoria. So you know, she's obviously, we're obviously very lucky to have Katie working with us. It's just like such an incredible team of people. But we also have all of you who have submitted already. And I talked about this in Friday's Instagram Live Q&A, but I think Clothes Horse could change the way we look at style blogs because there hasn't ever been one that is for the community, by the community, and featuring the community. This is how we show the rest of the world that all of the like gross old classist, racist, ageist, sexist, anti-fat biased ideas of taste and style are all caps over, you know, just O-V-E-R, done, get them out of here. This is the dawn of a new era in style and lifestyle and the way we all connect with one another. I just can't wait for the world to see how amazing our community is, for us to inspire others to join our movement, to do things differently, to see things in a new and beautiful way. So thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. We have so much good stuff coming over the next couple weeks, but we will need more content basically all the time. Like that's the thing about blogs. You have to feed them every day, just like your cat. So please reach out with your ideas. I know that you're probably saying, I can't write or I'm boring, but guess what? 
I guarantee that both of those statements are completely untrue and you have so much talent and wisdom to share with all of us. So you can either reach out to me at amanda at closehorse.world or send your idea to submissions at closehorse.world. And I, I can't wait to see what all of us do together in 2021. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll share a link in the show notes. I think we have about 70 members now. That feels huge to me. (laughs) If you need a new podcast because you've run out of all the other podcasts. I swear, though, there's like an infinity symbol number of podcasts that you could listen to right now. But I recommend that you check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We're in the midst of a scintillating series about the 2000s. And it's stretching way out into the future because we just keep thinking of new stuff we need to cover. In our most recent episode, we talked about hipster racism, skinny jeans, PBR, and so much more. This week, we'll be releasing an episode about the misogyny and scammery. Scammery a word? I don't know, but there sure were a lot of hipster scammers. So we'll be talking about those things this week. Thanks, as always, to the one and only Dustin Travis White, my valentine, for our music and audio support. Bye.